Welcome to the Truth Simply Put, the teaching broadcast vehicle of the Basilea Commission. On today's teaching by Alexander Victor, God's Word rightly divided in the light of Christ, who is the central theme of the entire scriptures, will come with simplicity, precision, clarity, and power to instruct, admonish, edify, and build you up into the full measure of the stature of Christ. Now, let's dive straight in. The Lord will have me just work, know water at Jacob's well a little bit more. The Savior doesn't need saving. Yeah. No water at Jacob's well. Uh, so let's, let's, let's call this more lessons from John 4. Yeah. So let's call it more lessons from John 4. So we looked at John 4, looked at that narrative. I established that Jesus needed to go through, through Samaria. And I explained to you that contrary to popular belief, it wasn't Jesus going out of character to go through Samaria. That was your thing, right? And I, I showed you that adding Jesus to the, to the narrative of people who avoid Samaria will make him part of the problem, right? Will make, him, will make him part of the problem. But he came to create a people out of different people, not to fuel divisions. If Jesus was fueling divisions, then he didn't come to make one people. Romans 3, 21 to 30. Romans 3, 21 to 30. I'm just going to plug a few of these gaps that I didn't work as much as I would have liked to. Quickly, 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 and then we go on. Romans 3, 21 to 30. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law. The righteousness of God is apart from the law. So the, the law cannot bring about the righteousness of God. Okay? The, the righteousness of God apart from the law. You cannot consider the law and God's righteousness in the same sentence. The righteousness from God is apart from the law. The law of Moses cannot bring about the righteousness of God. It is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Being witnessed here would refer to having been prophesied by the law and the prophets. Not that the law and the prophets saw the manifestation. Witness in this, in this context is not a witness. It's not necessarily one who... In English terms, who sees. Yeah, a witness in the scriptures is one who testified to or upheld something. Does that make sense? Right. So when it says witnessed by the law and the prophets, it means that the law and the prophets attested to or prophesied about the revelation of the righteousness of God, which is apart from the law. Make sense? All right, keep going. We're going all the way to 30. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ and Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. To all and on all. That's the purpose of the manifestation or the revelation of the righteousness of God which is apart from the law. And we know that righteousness because Jesus said in Matthew 6 and 33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Right? And then Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, that for we know, that God, he, there will be God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin. That we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. If Christ became our sin, it means we were sin. Which conversely means, if we became his righteousness, then he is righteousness. Are you following it now? That will also further explain 1 Corinthians 1 and 30 where it says all things are from God who became for us wisdom 
righteousness, redemption, and sanctification. Does that make sense? So Christ is our right standing because he is the righteousness of God. That's why he is called in 1 John 2, Jesus Christ the just. The just is the word, the righteous. Some translations actually, actually render that. Jesus Christ the righteous. 1 John 2 and 2. If anyone sins, we have an advocate before the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. So when he says the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, who is he referring to? Christ, because righteousness is a person. Make sense? Attested to by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Um, um, For there is no difference. For all have sinned. Gang, gang. <laughs> For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not of the grace of God. When you fall short of the glory, you fall into the grace. Here's what fall short of his glory will refer to. Hold on for a second. Hebrews 2.10 says, For your spitting for him, for whom and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons into So glory is where you fell from. What will glory refer to? Immortality. When God created Adam, did he create him to die? So, hold on, calm down, calm down, calm down. So when Adam was created, immortal, eternally living being, he was created in the glory. So when he fell and lost his position, he fell short of the So now Jesus comes and Jesus is bringing many sons back into. So there are two different concepts. All have sinned, Hamashiach, trespassed. On account of that, they fell short of God's glory. They fell foul of God's glory. They abdicated God's glory. Which is, which is what? Immortality. So salvation, therefore, is a restoration of and to the glory. Fall short of the glory. Please don't hear. Fall short of the grace. The only premise for falling out of grace is to go back to the law. That's the only time where Paul will say you have fallen from grace. Otherwise you fall whether we like it or not into grace. Galatians 5 and 4. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law. You have This is the only premise that one can fall from grace. To turn to the law for justification and righteousness, the law does not have the power to give you because the righteousness of God is apart. So by the time you turn away from the righteousness which is by grace through faith, 
and turn to the Lord to please God. You fell from grace. You are trying to please God. And that's you falling from grace. Yes, sir. For all have sinned. Romans 3.23 And fallen short of the glory of God. Is that clearer for somebody? Yes, Having been justified, 24. That's good news. Freely, by his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Keep going. All I'm trying to show you is that Jesus could not have prejudiced against the Samaritans. That's I'm, I'm just trying to show you John 4. Don't forget. <laughs> Whom God set forth as propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the Jew. The first thing that would have come to their minds when they got here would be to think of the Jews. So Paul says, the one who has faith in Jesus. Let me prove the point. Next verse. Where is boasting then? It's excluded. By what law? Of works? No. But by the law of faith. Next verse. Therefore we conclude. That a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds. NLT, let it help somebody. NLT 28. So we are made right with God through faith and not. TPT. TPT. TPT 28. So our conclusion is this. God's wonderful declaration that we are righteous in his eyes can only what now? Can only come when we put our faith in Christ and So again, I don't understand why religion has so many DJs. You know DJ with two decks, right? You are playing this one, you know? So at, at some point... Because they blend the tempo of the two songs. You're not actually sure what particular beat you're listening or dancing to. There's, 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 a, there's, this, there's this fusion. and you're not, At some point, you're, not, you're hearing two different keys. You're hearing two different percussions. And, and sometimes after a while, it dulls your senses. And then you turn that noise to music. Because music, by definition, is any combination of sounds... That are pleasing to the ears. Three primary elements being harmony, rhythm, and melody. Noise, therefore, will mean any combination of sounds that is displeasing to the ear. So even music wrongly combined can be noise. So the DJ just goes, and after a while your senses are numb, and you're just in the rave. You're now in the psyche of the music and not in the definition of the music. And we bring that in church, and then we're, you know, we're, we're playing grace. And then just as you're beginning to say, hey, and then we bring a little law so you know go crazy. So you know go crazy. So you know go crazy. Regulate, 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 regulate. Re, 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 Shake it, shake it, regulate, regulate, regulate. Yeah. It a choke, it a choke some grace. Some grace. Has bewitched us. 
don't DJ the gospel. You don't. For we maintain, he says, that a man is justified by faith apart, not in addition to. Not on a layer of. We are justified by faith apart from the law. The law has no part to play in our justification by faith. 29. Is helping anybody? Now see where I was going. Oh, is he the God of the Jews only? You see the argument now? So if Jesus were discriminating against the Samaritans, he shoots himself in the foot. In fact, he essentially blows himself up. Because his assignment primarily was to create one people out of peoples. And he couldn't have started off by discriminating against the Samaritans. Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. 30 and the last verse for this text. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith, that's the Jews, and the uncircumcised, NLT. There's only one God, and He makes people right with Himself only by faith. Whether they are Jews or Gentiles. Galatians 3.28 There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one. In Christ Jesus. Can you see that? 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. So Jesus came to unite, to, to unify, to create one unit out of everything, and not to, to segregate or marginalize. This is one, I wrote here, this is one major aspect of the church being God's workmanship, and you will love it when I show you this in Ephesians 2. It's, it's one of the major aspects of God's workmanship. It's not just birthing the church, but birthing the church as a result of collapsing all the peoples. That's an important element of the church. Is the fact that the church is made up of peoples. Second uh, Peter 1 9, for you, a chosen generation, holy people, call for the praise of him who has called out darkness in his whole marvelous light. 10, who were not a people. And now, the people of God. Right? So, Ephesians 2 and 10, you'll see that. But you see, I, I, I've, I've unpacked 10 for you. And even this is not an exhaustive exegesis. I'm just trying to make that point and drive it home. Because it's a, it's a stronghold in Christianity. A lot of people believe that Jesus actually would normally with his disciples. Even a lot of Bible commentaries suggested that Jesus with his disciples will, will avoid Samaria. So he was out of character for Jesus to do that. And so, th so think of this as an apologetic for the character of Jesus. The character of Jesus cannot be contrary to the ministry of Jesus. 
That is why we cannot or should not call down fire from heaven to consume people. Because if Jesus wanted us to do that, in Luke 9, he would have added it to his character. Luke 9, 49, they were going through a Samaria city. This same Samaritans. Going through Samaria city, and he says, you know, no, go on, 50, 51, 53, into, into 54. It came to pass. When the time had come for him to be received of that, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And now you understand why. The Samaritans believe, look at them. See how they come. He put his passing here to go to Jerusalem to worship. They keep feeling like Jerusalem is the in thing. is the place of worship. What happened to Mount Gerizim? This is why they did not receive him. Because what they heard was they were receiving somebody who is preparing to go to Jerusalem. Not because he was a Jew. But because he favored worship or he appeared to favor worship in Jerusalem. Let's see how the tippity puts it. But as they approached the village, they were turned away. They would not allow Jesus to enter. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you. That's why it's important to look at scripture completely. Not just take narratives and singular verses. You will get it wrong. So that's why they refused him. Because I look, oh, he's one of them people that is going to Jerusalem to worship. Making us feel like we're nothing, right? Oh, our man, Gerizim doesn't, doesn't, he's one of them people. Please keep moving. And then the disciples, next verse. James and John saw this. They said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? And this was giving Jesus an opportunity to show a dimension of his character. Which would have enabled us to be able to judge his ministry. Because the character of Jesus must align with the ministry of Jesus. See his response when he came up. He turned and rebuked them. And said, don't know what manner of speech you're of. Now does that sound like someone who wants you to be killing your enemies? By fire. You will now come and attack the messenger. I just showed you what the scripture says. And I know that you are arguing with Paul. I know you are trying your hardest. Especially in this season. To discredit Paul. It's amazing what men of God are preaching and teaching now. Against Paul. You will be shocked. Series, the errors of Paul's teachings. Oh yes. Yes. Men who are alive now can look at Paul and say, guy. Here, dead, 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 dead. You were wrong. The moment you do that, you're not safe. They totally discredit the concept of original sin. No, we could not have been sinners because of Adam's sin. Everybody sins when they lack faith. 
if that's the case, then we cannot be righteous either. By the imputed righteousness of Jesus, you're going to have to work for your righteousness. Which, which places you in the remit of dead works. And we're justified by grace through faith, the powerful. Oh, I'm sorry, that's Paul, right? So Paul says we are God's workmanship. Ephesians 2.10 We know the scripture, we love the scripture, we've torn that scripture apart in this house. We know what it means to be God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he preordained that we should walk in. It doesn't stop there. You see what the whole workmanship thing was geared towards. Verse 11. Ephesians 2.10 going to 11. And we're going from 11 all the way to 22. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called circumcision. You know, that was Jews, right? Made in the flesh by hands. Go on. That at that time, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. So this is Paul unpacking the workmanship thing. He himself is our peace who has made both one. Who is both? The circumcision and has broken down the middle wall of separation having abolished in his flesh the enmity. What was the enmity? The law of commandments contained in the ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two. Thus making peace. That's what it means in that context is our peace. Thus making peace and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross. So it's not right for a Gentile to say, well, I've never, I was never under the law. Doesn't mean that the law didn't have a huge effect over you. The enmity was the law. Thereby putting to death the enmity. What is the enmity? The law. Keep going. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and to those who were near. For through him, we both, who is we both? Circumcision? Have access by one spirit to the Father. Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, see that, and members of the household of God, having been built, this household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. We'll come back to this verse. To whom, in whom rather, you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Pay attention to this. In the Spirit. So he has made us one out of multiple different elements. Make sense? Is that, is that, does that clarify that? So Jesus could not have been part of traveling, avoiding to travel through Samaria when he came to make one out of everybody. And on the strength of the evidence of scripture, we can safely submit that every theological postulation that determines or that suggests that Jesus avoided or usually would avoid the route through Samaria is actually painting Jesus as a racist, as part of the problem, as anti-Samaritan. Which he wasn't. He clearly wasn't. Because in Luke 9, you see him going 
through to Jerusalem. Again, remember, I, I used the virtual map, but I showed you that Galilee was up here. Jerusalem was down here, and you had Samaria in the middle. So Jesus leaving Capernaum, Galilee, where he lived, going to Jerusalem, would have to deal with Samaria. Hence, he sent people ahead of him into a Samarian village. Luke 9, to prepare a feast. So clearly, Jesus had no problem eating Samaritan food in a Samaritan guest house in a Samaritan village. That does not sound like someone that will avoid traveling through Samaria to not be contaminated by Samaritan impurities. Is that clear? Here's another one that we need to set straight. You have heard again in the narrative of John 4, uh, Jesus and the Samaritan woman, the same theological flawed perspective always paints it as though Jesus deliberately sent off his disciples on some sort of distraction mission to buy food so he can have time to talk to a woman in Samaria. Come on, talk to me now. That's one of the much touted narratives. Jesus just, we just distracted them. Go on and go and buy food. But not the Jesus we saw last Sunday. <laughs> the Jesus we saw last Sunday was dying by the well. <laughs> he was hungry. And they, contrary to popular opinion, went off to buy food to save Jesus. He was dying of hunger. So they went off to buy food. Jesus did not distract them. They saw that Jesus needed to be saved. John 4, 8. Check it in, in multiple translations. John 4, 8. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. He was alone at the time, NLT, because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. By the way, into what village? Called Sika, remember? S-Y-C-H-A-R. Okay. For his disciples had gone off into the city to buy food. His disciples had gone into the city or all village to buy food. Nothing suggests that Jesus sent them off. He's, so Tipiti now writes that narrative in. And says, wearied by his long journey, he sat on the edge of the cross well. He sent his disciples into the village to buy food. But scripture doesn't say that. This is a modern 21st century Bible translator that adds what has become accepted as the norm into the narrative. Scripture doesn't say in any text, original text, that they are going to buy food had to do with Jesus. Why do they do that? Because they have driven for centuries the narrative that ordinarily Jesus would not, as a Jew, interface with a Samaritan and a woman, which itself is a problem. Jesus is there dying. They go to buy food. Trophas, in the Greek, tropas, T-R-O-P-H-A-S, just means food or nourishment. And we look at that, he had to distract them, send them on a wild goose chase. So when the woman comes, they will not, Peter will not stop up and say, why are you talking to a woman? That's something else we're going to deal with in a minute. 
What city did they come to? John 4 and 4. Sika. They came to a city in Samaria. John 4 and 4. Please help me. Yeah, verse 5. He needed to go through Samaria, the region. So he came to a city, some translations say village, depending on how they measure it, which is called Sika or Sychar, if you like. Near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, right? So verse 8 then says, verse 8, for his disciples had gone away into the city. What city? Sika. Um, he needed to go through Samaria. They came to a city in the region of Samaria called Sika. Neplos today in, in Palestine. Sika is a Samaritan city or village. Jesus is by the Jacob's well, hungry and dying. His Jewish disciples have no problem going into a Samaritan village to buy Samaritan food from Samaritan people. And in many instances, as with any market in the world, where food is being sold, the primary proponents and sellers of that food are women. So there is no way you can rule out the fact that when these disciples went into a Samaritan's village to buy Samaritan food from Samaritan people, they did not interface with Samaritan women. Which then will be a bit of an anathema, right? For that to be happening, and Jesus is here, worried that they will see him talking with a Samaritan woman. When the very village they went to buy food, it's a Samaritan village. The food they are buying is Samaritan food. And most likely the women they are going to deal with there are Samaritan women. So again, don't paint Jesus as part of the problem. Jesus is not a misogynist narcissist. It's not. Neither should we be. Because it's our partner. Jesus had no problem, actually, talking to a woman to the point where he would have to distract his disciples in order to do that. Every market has a combination of men and women. Every. Especially when it has to do with food. So, when then Jesus returned, when the disciples were that returned and saw Jesus talking with a woman, you know how it's in the scripture says that they marveled that he was talking with a woman. Their concern could not have been racial. Their concern could not have been misogynist. Their concern could not have been, ah, he's talking to a Samaritan. Dude, you just came back from a Samaritan city where you went to buy Samaritan food from Samaritan people. So their complaint when they saw Jesus talking with a Samaritan woman could not have been racist in the sense that they, why are you talking to a Samaritan? Duh. Does that make sense? It could also not have been misogynist. Why are you talking to a woman? Because they had just come back from possibly buying food from a woman. So we have to look at this narrative carefully. And understand that no, these guys were not contrary to what Religion has sold to us over centuries that these guys didn't talk with women, didn't interface with women. It wasn't true because they had numerous encounters with women. 
Luke 8 records that women traveled with Jesus. Jesus did not have problem. He did not have a problem rolling with the ladies. Mm-hmm. Luke 8 and 1, Luke 8 and 1, right through to 5. See it for yourself. Now we came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village, preaching and bringing the great tidings of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Can you imagine? Jesus is going from village to village, and women who are ex demon possessed are followed. Can you imagine? Why do you think they will not call him one that had a demon? You see, you see women following Jesus, and every one of them had issues. That's why Luke could say, Oh, yeah, remember Mary Magdalene? That one that had demons were seven. So she has been identified by the demons that were cast out. Put it back. Mary Magdalene, out of whom had come. Yes. Luke was there, was like, Yeah, one. Yeah, six months ago. Yeah, two, five more demons. Oh, yeah, seven demons. I'm free. Yeah, seven. <laughs> and there's all this stuff I've painted in Nigeria about how we deal with demons. So you say, say Jesus. You say Jesus. Oh, now all the demons have gone. You're joking. You're jo- demons know the name Jesus, they use it. It's, it's very amusing, you know. You see people conducting deliverance, they tell the demons cannot call Jesus. Where did you learn that from? So you pray and pray, call Jesus. Shut up, fire, fire, fire. Call Jesus. Fire, fire. Call Jesus. Jesus. Call his name. Jesus. You are free. You are delivered. If there were truly a demon in there, the demon just took a break. Hey, Jesus, let, let, me, let me rest in this body, please. Uh, do other things. Jesus, you always hear Jesus, Jesus. They have no problem calling Jesus. He's their boss. Mm-hmm. He's their boss. He's a lot of hosts. He is. That's why when that one that had 6,000, 4 to 6,000 legion in Decapolis, when he saw Jesus, he said, Master, please, Come on, man. What have we to do with you? We know that you have come here. You're going to ask us to leave this man. Where do you want us to go? Okay, you know what? Okay, there's, don't send us back to the abyss. It's, it's, there's, there's them pigs there. Just tell us to go into the pigs. They didn't even choose to go into the pigs. They asked for permission from Jesus to leave the man and go into the pigs. And Jesus granted them permission because he didn't come for animal rights. <laughs> he didn't come to save animals. They have no soul that needs saving. Mm-hmm. They are meat, whether you, whether you are vegetarian, vegan or not. They are meat. <laughs> if you don't want to eat them, that's fine. 
Romans 14 says, don't eat and give God glory. And then it says another one, eat and give God glory. So you don't want to eat meat, be my guest. That leaves plenty more for us. Yeah, it's alright. Not a problem at all. I know me offend. It's scriptural scripture. It's one refrain and gives God praise. And okay, they put it up. Another one eats, gives God thanks. Another one does not eat. Let each one be convinced in his own mind. The whole world cannot be vegan. It'll be boring. The whole world cannot be vegetarian. It'll be boring. There'll be too many animals. They'll be sharing rent with us in our houses. They will not be able to pass. No. So we have to control the animal population. We have to. We were giving dominion over them, not them giving dominion over us. God forbid. Part of how we show the dominion we have is to. Please, if you're a vegetarian and you say, I'm, I'm not coming here next Sunday. No, I didn't mean it like that. So they travel with Jesus. And minister to him. In Mark 7 and 24 to 30, you see this Seraphonician woman, the woman from Syrophoenicia, the one that had her daughter who was demon possessed, and came to Jesus, and Jesus said, I'm not even, I don't even have time for dog. It's like, yeah, 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 but even dogs. Why would Jesus have a conversation with her as a woman and as a Gentile if we're painting Jesus as part of the Jews who didn't talk with women? The woman caught in adultery, John 8, 1 to 11. Just write it down. I'm going to read John 8, 1 to 11. Again, why would Jesus ask her, woman, where are your accusers? Does no one condemn you? Well, neither do I. Why would he talk with her if the Jesus that has been painted is a Jesus that doesn't talk or interface with women? The woman with the issue of blood, Mark 5, 25 to 34. The one with the alabaster oil. Matthew 26, Luke 7. And I've called just a few. Just a few. To let you see that. Scriptures do not teach that women are inferior to men. Just like scriptures I've taught you in this house before. Scriptures do not validate slavery. That scriptures happened in the time of slavery and acknowledge the presence and existence of slavery does not mean scripture endorses slavery. Scripture does not teach that women are inferior to men, not even to their husbands. So you see the whole feminist is very misplaced. It's very misplaced. Feminism is a function of gross insecurity and lack of understanding of the scriptures. Feminist, feminist, just take your place. And walk in your place. Understand that you're not, every God did not place every woman under every man. And placed her under her husband to be submitted to him in all things as a type of how the church is submitted to Christ in all things. You understand that now? But Peter says that they are 
as to treat them as though they were weaker vessels. It doesn't suggest that they are. Because hear me, news flash. A weaker vessel cannot be a helpmate. Have your mumu not do? Because if a weaker vessel comes to help you, she's going to bog you down. She's going to slow you down. Now, now it's you babysitting and nursing the weaker vessel. Scripture doesn't say she is. It says you treat her as though she were a weaker vessel. Just like your elder brother treats you as you are being sanctified. Your elder brother is not judging and crushing you when you fall. Because he knows that even though we have the same standing, you have some attaining to do. So husband, see your wife like that. And you'll be more tolerant with her. You'll be more patient with her. You will look after her some more. Doesn't mean she's weak. He says, but you are heirs together. Together. Of the grace of life. Heirs together. So we don't need feminism. Yeah. yeah. At least not in the kingdom. If you understand the word rightly divided. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Oh, what's the big deal? Just be as God made you. Yes, sir. And then people will get up and go, yeah, oh, I wish I had time today. People will get up and go, yeah, but the scriptures teach that men should be, so women should be subject. I know where you're going. First Corinthians 14. Let's go there. What? What, 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 what could they be talking about? What could, what, what, what could, what? First Corinthians 14. You know, Paul mentions prophecy in, in chapter 12. Mentions it again in chapter 13. But then now starts to unpack prophecy in chapter 14. The first few verses. One who prophesies, prophesies edification and exhortation and comfort. Right? And because he had said earlier, and, and, and if, if you're going to prophesy, then let others be quiet. You're prophesying, let others be silent. Hmm? Others be silent. So silence is in the context of prophecy. Read 34 and 35. Put it up on the screen. 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35. Let your woman... I have to try and sound like it, isn't it? Keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak. Oh. But they are to be submissive as the law also says. 35. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands. Shh, hold on. So first of all, whatever this thing is saying, it is saying to women with husbands. That's the first point. Which... So submission, go back to the 34. 34. 
they are to be submissive. To who? A woman is not submitted to every man. The scriptures do not teach that. In Africa, of course, a man looks at you, every woman, you must submit to me. I'm your head, you are a wizard. No. To her own husband. 35. If they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful. It is shameful. It is shameful. It is shameful for women to speak in church. That's what Paul said. Women should not speak in church. Excuse me, sir. First Corinthians 11, sir. First Corinthians 11, sir. First Corinthians 11, 5. But um, every woman... Everyone who prays or prophesies with a head uncovered, uh, hold on. Women pray and prophesy. Uh oh. Acts chapter 2 now. Verse 16. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, your and will. But I do not permit women to speak in the church. It's shameful. Then we have to understand what Paul is talking about. Because he cannot come and contradict himself. In the same book, the same letter, chapter 11, you are saying woman praying and prophesying on covers her head in the church. And then now you are saying women should be quiet in church. But then the sons and daughters will prophesy. And prophecy speaks edification, integration, and comfort. The testimony of Jesus is read a prophecy. Women should not speak or have power over men. What are you talking about? It cannot mean a blanket statement on silence. But you see where Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14. I love to teach God's word. That when a prophecy is given, other prophets should examine it. 1 Corinthians 14. I'm going to pick it up from 27. And what I showed you about women being silent is 34 and 35. See the pretext. 27. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or three at the most, each in turn, one after the other. And let one interpret. 28. But if there's no interpreter, let the tonga keep silent in church. <laughs> Hmm? Every Tonga needs an interpreter. Let him keep silence in church and let him speak to himself. 
Next verse. Let two or three prophets speak and let the other prophets judge. Stay here and give me uh, TPT, NLT, modern translations. Evaluate is the word that they should have used. Let the other prophets, you see that? Carefully evaluate. Hear me now. This will shock you. This is the context within which Paul says the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophets. The spirit of the prophet. You and your prophecy all you have declared. Is subject to the prophet that will evaluate your prophecies. Thirty-two. Let's skip to thirty-two. We'll come back. You see it clearly. New King James. Thirty-two. Thirty-two. Keep in mind that. It's not, that, it's, not, it's not what it means. I, I can prophesy as I like. I can stop as I like. That's not what Paul was saying. Prophets, speak. Other prophets, evaluate. Your prophecy, the accuracy of your prophecy is subject to the evaluation of the prophets that evaluate what you have prophesied. So you're a prophet of the most high God after you have prophesied, the rest of us that have prophetic insight, how consistent with the testimony of Jesus is your prophecy? If your prophecy doesn't pass the test of prophetic evaluation, it cannot be received in church as prophecy. The spirit of the prophet. Now, I've not checked. I don't know what TPT and message render 32 like, but let's see. Keep in mind that the anointing on the prophet, on the, the anointing to prophesy doesn't mean the speaker is out of control. He can wait his turn, then try. NLT. Remember that people who prophesy are in control of their spirits that can take turns. You see the problem? Give us uh, what other amplifier. For the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. The prophecy is under the speaker's control and he can stop speaking. Totally missing the point. Go back to 29. Father, help us set your word straight in the eyes of your people. Now pick another modern translation. I haven't looked at it in them, but pick anyone. Modern translation. Okay. Common Christian. Okay. Two or three prophets should speak and let the others, and the others should evaluate. 30. 30. Next verse. But if something has been revealed to another person sitting there, the first prophet should be silent. 31. For you all, you can all prophesy one by one, so that everyone may learn and everyone may be encouraged. 32. And the prophet's spirits are under control of the prophet. 33. Since God is not a God of disorder but of peace, the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophets. Because the previous verse just says, every, when you prophesy, the prophets should ever let's stop reading into scripture what scripture doesn't say and unfortunately I, 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 I honestly I understand I understand I believe me I understand who is path to interpret the scriptures I understand that I understand that we're up against established religion 
I understand we're up against decades and, and even centuries of mismanagement of the word of truth. Such that if, 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 even if it was going to be interpreted or reinterpreted, not. Not by you. All it takes is to open the Bible and see what the Bible actually says. Not when you go with your own mindset. And you're thinking because you've always heard this thing. You go into the Bible and then you're not letting the Bible show you what the Bible is saying. So what is the subject of discussion now by, by, by 29? Prophets speak. Others can evaluate. These prophets from Joel to, from Acts to, are sons and daughters. Prophecy is not gender limited. Acts 2, Joel 2. Sons and daughters will prophesy. Then we have seen in this same Corinthian letter in chapter 11, a woman is prophesying and praying. So when you're counting prophets by 1 Corinthians 14, it had to include women. When the prophets prophesy, let the other prophets evaluate the prophecy. Right? We are the 32 because by 32 we see that the spirit of the prophet who has prophesied is subject to the spirit to the prophets who are evaluating. Keep going. Going 32 now, I'm going to 33. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. What is the confusion? 34. Evaluation of prophecy. Let your women keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak. Not, it cannot be said that they, cannot, they are not permitted to prophesy. Because Paul himself has just showed us in chapter 11 that women are prophesying. Does that make sense? In Acts 2, Peter confirmed this is what was written of Joel. I will pour my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. So keeping silent in church has to be contextual. What is the context? Evaluating prophecy. Here was what was going on in the Corinthian church. Uduak, prophet. David, prophet. Emmanuel, prophet. Susan, prophet. A bunch of us, not, not all of us, are all prophets, Paul acts. That means not all. But yet there's prophets. And when a prophet speaks, other prophets should evaluate or judge. Here's what was going on. David will prophesy. When is evaluation time? Prophet Uduak. Who sit and say, no, what David prophesied is wrong. But Uduak is supposed to be submitted to David, her husband, in all things. But now in the evaluating of prophecy, Uduak, David's prophecy is now subject to Uduak's evaluation. Reversing the order of husband and wife, Christ and the church. David prophesied. Uduak cannot get up and say that prophecy is, is wrong. Even if it were, it would be fostering confusion for somebody who is subject to someone to now evaluate that person, how much more evaluate them wrongly. What was that bringing in the Corinthian church? Confusion. Women were speaking when they should be silent. It's not about gender. It's not about whether you should prophesy or not. 
is whether or not you should usurp authority in the evaluation of prophecy. So what was Paul's fix? Don't evaluate prophecy. Be silent and be submitted or better put, appear. Take the posture of submission in the church to your husband. You cannot be in church like this. Maybe this prophesying. Who do I get so? Ah! 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 Mm. Devo! 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 My evaluation of that prophecy is wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. Right there in the church, it kills the picture of submission. This is why at the time when this was happening, Paul, Timothy was pastor in the Corinthian church. So Paul writes to Timothy and says, I forbid women from speaking over men. Let her ask her husband at home. I think first Timothy 4. Does that make sense? That was the forbidding to speak. Not a blanket ban on women speaking. That would be very, very contrary to everything we have seen and everything God prophesied. So please, let our women prophesy. Let our woman prophesy. I, prophecy is not. Mm. Do you understand what I'm saying now? And why did Paul? Why did Paul institute this? It was because, like First Corinthians 11 shows, he was just showing the order of Christ and the church. The church will not get up and say, "Christ, shut up." That's why I always advise ladies: marry a man who can be a dummy. Or stay single. You can't marry and want independence. You can't. Oh no. You jump, you marry, you are submitting to your husband in all things. This is where feminists start to kick in. You can't lay your life down and want to hold it back. Nobody, Paul, that's why Paul, did you not see that Paul told you in 1 Corinthians 7 that his advice to you is to stay single before Christianity started doing programs for you to get married. All of you, lift your hands. Those who believe your husband. Take your husband now. Take your, how? How are you taking it? And then you see people falling under the anointing to collect husband. You see brothers manifesting to collect wives. Don't go and talk to somebody and stop your body odor. Sister, don't go and shave your legs. You look like an orangutan. And you say, Lord, every all, all of my family, break it. Clean up. Some of you, when you enter the room, the glory leaves. I don't know who's after me for my it's not your village it's not your village they covered my star you are the one that covered your star your star cannot breathe so your star left you and went outside to go out. 
should go and breathe. By the time your star came back, you were 42 years old. They have to me, they have to me, they have to me. For what purpose? Check, check. See, not, not everything is spiritual. Check patterns in your life. Do the opposite. Break it. The reason why we're not progressing as Africans is because we're blaming everything on spiritual problems. Everything is spiritual. Everything is spiritual. You come to someone and they say, open your mouth and say something sweet to someone. And you open your mouth and... Ushers, ushers, ushers. Ushers. Hold him, hold him. And you not come and say... I was dreaming. The Lord showed me to you. So it was a nightmare. It was a nightmare. It was a nightmare, not a dream. You saw me in your dream. You had a nightmare. Check your temperature. Proverbs says, Proverbs says, he that must have friends must show himself friendly. He that must marry, she that must marry, must present themselves marriageable. This is how I always dress. In our generations, this is how we dress. Paul says, stay single. The person that told you you are saved by grace through faith told you the preference is for you to stay single. Marry if you cannot control it. How then the church take what was an option and make scripture broken. Paul did not have sense to make marriage one of the blessings that the cross paid for. It makes it optional. No. Because marriage is a huge, huge responsibility. It's not easy. It's not easy at all to be married and to stay married. It's not. It's not easy. To be faithful to life, faithful to work, faithful to church, and word of everything that life and the devil throws at you. And church now made it a prayer point. But it's optional. So that when you're marrying, you're marrying with your two eyes open. You're marrying Jesus in a man. If you don't see Jesus in a man, keep walking. Because the moment you marry, that's Jesus. The man says, honey, so we're sitting today. Yes, Lord. Literally. That's the scriptures. Because our husband, as many as are led by this husband, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, are the sons of God. If we're being led, being ekbalod, it means we don't go where our husband doesn't lead us. How then can you be a believing wife and not sit under the submission of your believing Husband. Because you didn't look for believing when you were married. Mm-hmm. You looked for your biological clock. TikTok, TikTok, TikTok. So if you marry a man, you're marrying a man that has the measure of Christ that you can say yes, Lord, to. For this reason, Peter wrote, Sarah called Abraham Lord. For this reason. What was the reason? Abraham believed God. 
Faith, 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 faith. Faith was the reason, not money, not livestock, not cows. Not the fact that Abraham could travel from Canaan to Dubai and from Dubai to America and from America for this reason. Faith was the reason why Abraham, Sarah called him. So if you don't see the faith in deed and speech, because once you marry, that's yes, sir. Just as the church says, yes, sir. And don't forget, marriage was instituted to show the relationship between Christ and the church. Between man and woman is a bonus. (laughs) So it establishes the fact that Jesus did not have any, he didn't look down on women. Neither should we. So he could not have had a problem talking with a woman. Samaritan. So when the disciples come back and find him and they are concerned that he's talking to a woman, what was their concern? In Jewish culture, women were subservient to men in the learning of the Torah. It was men that went to he taught the law because the men were the priests of their homes. And so a man would then go home and teach the law to his children, and his wife, and his household, basically. Does that make sense? So if you found a man talking to a woman, if he wasn't teaching her, then he was just having slight banter. And even slight banter in Jewish culture was frowned upon. You can't just see a Jewish man just chatting with a woman freely, just laughing. Because it begins to be looked at as a distraction from your life that is supposed to be devoted to studying the law of Moses, studying the Torah. That was Jewish culture. Does that make sense? So talking to a woman was seen as a distraction. What, what are you talking? What do you have to be saying with a woman? These things are important to understand so that when, when Paul writes in Ephesians 2, that in Christ now there is no male and female. You understand contextually what it means. It doesn't mean that our oh, man, female, I can submit you, you can submit you, I can chance you, you can chance me. That's not what it means contextually. It means that the nuances of gender, the nuances of being male, that nuance that prevented you from coming and accessing the word for yourself, that other nuance that made you feel like you were the only one that could access the word for yourself. Male and female, those dynamics that make us different in the faith don't exist anymore. Does that make sense? Very important. So, that's how it was. And then you, so you come in into 27 of John 4. You now see the disciples looking at Jesus. And like, I, wonder what he, I wonder what he could be saying with this woman. It was not because she was a woman. It's not because she was a Samaritan. Have we established that sufficiently enough? At this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. So we can just start to run with the fact that it's because she was a woman. But I've shown you a few of plenty examples where Jesus had no problem interfacing with women. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Seek. Mind the word. I won't get there today, unfortunately. Or, why are you talking with her? Another translation, 27. Just then his disciples came back. They were shocked. What is NLT? To find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve. 
to ask, what do you want with her? Or why are you talking to her? TPT. At, the, at that moment, the disciples returned and were stunned to see Jesus speaking with the Samaritan woman. Yet none of them dared to ask him why or what they were discussing. Because it was, it was, it was odd. What, what, what could be so deep? Talking with a woman. Not because she was a woman. Have I emphasized that? Why are you talking? What do you, what do you seek? And that straightens that narrative that appears to paint Jesus as though he couldn't talk to women. All through scripture, you see him engaging. You see women traveling with him. Women are pouring oil on his feet and using their hair. Imagine if you just you walked into Christ's experience. And you just see me sat on here. Let's say these are like, what, 30 braids? Let's say 200 braids. Like really thick, full, long, oriental hair. And you see your master sat there. And you just see this lady crouch at his feet. Pouring the costliest oil perfume. Not in his bedroom. In a teaching meeting. The alabaster encounter was not in private. And then she pours that and she's there at his feet. And she's using her hair. The whole bulk of her hair. On his feet. And wiping his feet with her hair. What would you say? This thing no pure at all. No pure at all. I always knew it. You know how we always knew something only when it has happened and it's bad? In Nigeria, everybody is a retrospective prophet. Everybody is an accurate prophet in hindsight. Everybody. I thought I knew it. Something was telling me that. One mind was saying that. Another mind. Hey! Another mind was now coming to say that. Then, that other, other mind. He had no problems interfacing with women. He still has no problems interfacing with women or anybody else. We went on then to rest. Is that, has that clarified a lot of things? We then went on to express, look at the narrative and see that he showed her that he was the supplanter of Jacob. He supplanted the supplanter because the supplanter had no water. He was the water of life. He was the water that Jacob longed to drink of. And then he goes into bring your husband. And I showed you that five, in fact, six men represented what he represented because somehow everything Jesus said, she understood. When Jesus said to her, you have had five men. Remember five men? The sixth one is on your husband. That's what he said. And she goes to the city and she says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. But all he said, it appears, is you've had five men. The sixth one was your husband. But she heard everything she ever did in that statement. Does that make sense? And I said to you guys that what it signified was our sensualities, our five senses, all the issues of life that we've gone through. And this sixth one just brings you to the place of your absolute humanity and weakness because you're waiting for the seventh one, who is the real husband. 
So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11 and 2, for this reason I strive that I might present you as a bride. 2 Corinthians 11 and 2. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have been, I have betrothed you to one husband. Can you see that? The church is betrothed to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin, or as a chaste bride to Christ. Ephesians 5, you see that, right? 27, uh, 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ, right? Also love the church and gave himself for her, that he, Christ, that's a subject matter now, might sanctify and cleanse her, the church, husband and wife, right? With the washing of the water by the word, that he, Christ, might present her, the church, to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish, 28, so husbands ought to love their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Wives ought to love their, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. What does that imply? The church is the body of? The wife is the body of? In this context. So nourish and love your body as Christ is nourishing and loving his body. Does that make sense? So he's the, he's the husband. Revelation 19, 79. Revelation 19, 79. I'm just filling gaps and unpacking a few more concepts. Revelation 19, 7 to 9. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his wife has made herself ready. 8 into 9. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous act of the saints. 9. Then he said to me, write... Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper. The Lamb. Have we established that enough? This gets me to the next part of the narrative that I skipped last Sunday. Which is where she says, "Ah, I perceive you're a prophet. You know what? Yeah, we've sorted out all this water and living water and husband business. I have a question. You people say, Jerusalem is the right place to worship. Our people say, on the mountain, there's a right place to worship. It is a totally different, or it's a total deviation from the narrative that's going on. Water, husbands, you know, living water, Jacob is dead, you know, you better than our father Jacob. And the moment the woman perceived that here's someone that could probably have the answers to the question, and I bet she had asked a bunch of men that question at that well. Because we know from that narrative that she came to the well every time to fetch water because it was not living water. And each time she would ask in the hope that she's probably met a person of repute. You don't even have the answer. That's why that day she said, I perceive if you have told me this much, you must be a prophet. 
That means today, I will get the answer to my question. So yeah, let's stop this worship thing and let's settle this thing once and for all. People say it's Jerusalem. We say it's the mountain. Where is the right place to worship? She totally changes the conversation and we have always preached that she always did. Until we see carefully that she changed the conversation, Jesus brought it straight back to what he was saying. Mm-hmm. So, in actual fact, the narrative did not change. Jesus did not allow it. John 4, 19. Thank you. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is a place where we ought to, one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship, we know what we worship. For salvation is of the Jews. I explained that last week. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship in 24 and the last verse of this text. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit. And in truth. So I wrote here, at surface level, there appears to be a diversion from the topic at hand, at least from her standpoint. Jesus obliges the question, but uses her question to continue his message. And he says, you will not worship on the mountain in Jerusalem, but you worship in spirit. Uh, Go back to a few verses up where he says, if you know he who was in front of you, you would ask him instead and he would give you living water. Hmm? In John 7, I showed you last week, on that great day of the feast, 37, are you there? Only two people are there. John 7, 37. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone thirst." Let him come to me and drink. This is the concept introduced to the woman in John 4 because he is the river of living water. He is the living water. Water. Then it says, He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow. 39. But this he spoke concerning... When he spoke of water, he spoke concerning... Whom those believing in him will receive. Go back to John 4. You said, you people say that it's in Jerusalem we should worship. We say it's on this mountain. Where should you worship? Hey, it's not Jerusalem. It's not mountain. It is in spirit. When he was talking of water, he was referring to the spirit. So when she asks a question, he seizes opportunity of the question and takes her back to living water. Oh, aka the spirit. Ours coming and ours is. Because that was the work that Jesus came to do. To give living water that will flow, not the one you would drink. The anointing that God came to give you. It's not the anointing that pours on top of you. That's it going all the way down. Anointing on top of you never goes into you. 
we can pour a drum of any substance over you. In a few moments, watch wisdom. In a few moments, it will dry up. So this kind of anointing is nothing but a cheap, low, inferior type and shadow. So when Jesus spoke to them, he said, the one I came to give you is not the one that will come upon you. It's the one that will flow from inside you. So the anointing is the one that wells up from inside of you as a spring of living water springing onto eternal life. If you have the anointing inside of you that is now a spring, what is this for? See, they don't anoint people in that church. We don't have the power. To anoint men, we are the anointed. Only he who sends the anointing can anoint. The anointing he promised you is not the one upon you. It's the one within you. Thank you. It's the one within you. And as I'm careful with examples like this, before somebody go, hey, Papa, anointed me with water today. I just made you wet, sir. you have received an anointing John 2 you have received an anointing from the Holy One this anointing that you have received dwells in in Goya can never dwell drink it it will just make your poo smoother and softer when you go later tonight by tomorrow Goya has gone baby Bless the water. The water is blessed. You are going to wee and sweat it out. Really? But of this he spoke concerning the spirit. That will flow out of you. The water is the water that flows out of you. Go and check Revelation. You see that the throne of God is being described and is mentioned a river flowing out of it. Not to it. It's flowing out of the throne. That's what God promised. In those days, water will flow out and water the desolation of the earth. It is written, out of your belly. Out. You're like your father. Out of your belly. Not, not into and upon you. Out. God's design is that if what he has given you flows out of you. Out of you. Out of you. So all the while he was talking about water, he was actually talking about spirit. Water was metaphorical. Water was a metaphor for spirit. So when she goes, where are we going to worship? He's like, it's not about that. It's about this water I'm talking to you about. 
It's about the spirit. And when the spirit comes, that spirit that all who receive, all who believe will receive, you will not worship in a temple. You would worship as the temple. You worship as the temple. That was the plan. And then we'll start to look at what the fullness of worship in spirit means. And in truth. All of it was talking about water. She diverted, but he's the all-knowing. <laughs> He used his teaching to answer our question. Yes. And we've always seen it as different. Yes. Hey, I'll show you next week. Those that worship the Father was worshiping spirit and truth. But the Father seeketh such. What is the Father seeking? Those that were worshiping spirit and in truth. What is spirit? The water that he will give them when they receive. Which they received in Acts 2 when the Holy Ghost came upon, which is to say into them. Right? And we have taught in the past that if God was seeking true worshippers, it means they were rare. Because that's why God has to seek them. No, God was seeking true worshippers because they were none. If true worshippers are those that worship in spirit, then at the time Jesus was speaking, that the Father is seeking worshippers who would worship in spirit. So no, seeking there did not refer to God looking to see where the few true worshippers are. There were none. There were none. Seeking there was the Son of Man came to uh, So what was seeking in that context? Salvation. Oh, give God praise. Give God praise. Next week. This is the kind of worship the Father desires. Spirit worship. Living water worship. Worship that comes from inside of you. That's what the Father is seeking. That's why I came. So by 32, hey, my Lord, by 31, they said to him, ah, who gave him food? John 4. Who gave him food? By 32, he tells them, I have food to eat that you don't know of. By 34, he says, my food is to do the will. What is his will? Seek and save. Bring men into the kingdom. Restore sonship. That was his will. That was his food. That was what the father was seeking. So when he said to her, the father seeketh such. The father seeketh such. Refers to what? The father came to seek. Which is to say, to save. This is the understanding with which you hit Luke 15. The lost sheep. That he leaves the ones that have been found and goes after the lost one. That he's seeking that one to restore because he wants full sheep. 
You start to look at it as seeking. It's not God is searching. How would God be searching and be saying, wait, oh, this world I created, I can't find the true worshippers and his omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. And God is like, ah, see how worshippers scars. Yeah. I've been searching, I've been searching, I've been searching, I can't find, I can't find true worshippers. Worshippers are so scarce. No, that's not the right application, interpretation of that scripture. True worshippers were zero. Worshippers in spirit and truth did not exist. Spoiler alert for next week. John 14, 6. I am the way. I am the... Shh. They that worship must worship in spirit and in... And I am the... Father is seeking such. How can there be such? When Jesus is the truth, he has not died, men have not received. Sanctify them by that truth. John 17, 17. Thy word is truth. He is the truth. Truth comes into you when he dies and resurrects and you receive his life by his spirit. Which is only how you can worship the father. So when the father is seeking those in spirit and truth. Looking for those who are anointed and is flowing from within. Sonship. Galatians 4, 6. You have received the spirit of his son. Crying out of a father. And those who worship in the fullness of the reality of who Jesus is. So in that era, how can he be seeking for what he has not generated? How can he be seeking for what he has not created? They did not exist. So seek in that context means this is what the father came to put together, to restore. To raise a generation that will worship in the spirit. Paul understood that when he says in Philippians 3.3, For we are the circumcision. We worship where? In the? He comes in Romans 8 and 9. And he puts in Romans 8 and 9. See Romans 8 and 9. But you are not in the flesh, but you are in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells where? In you. Not on you. So that was the narrative of the entire story of the well. Was him talking about the Holy Spirit that will come into you and then you saw a true worshiper is not one who cries during worship. A true worshiper is one in whom dwells the anointing and in whom lives the consciousness. Spirit. In whom dwells the anointing and in whom lives the consciousness. The Christ conscious believer in whose life the spirit of God dwells is a true worshiper. And such right now God is not seeking. Why did I say that? Because he promised the woman the time is coming. Now it's because you are receiving a token of what is coming. People that were forgiven before Jesus died. Jesus told them, he said, you are clean because of the words I I spoke over you. They received forgiveness in a promissory sense. So when he said the time is coming, he was referring to you. you. When he said now is, it was because she was receiving a token of what was coming. So no, we are not. God is not seeking. We're here. 
Worship us in truth and spirit. Now you have 30 seconds to worship him. Spirit, come on. We worship in the spirit. We worship in the truth. seeking you. You who were once far, has he brought near? You who were once far, has he brought near? He's not looking, he brought you near, he's looking for you. No, you are not who he's, you are the result of what he came to seek. Yes, yes. You are, you are, when he was speaking this to the Samaritan woman, he was telling her, this is what the father sent me to come and gather. To come and put together for the father. Sons and daughters. Walking in the fullness of their realization of who they are in Christ. Oh, come on, give him praise in here. Well, that's it for today's teaching. We trust it has been worth your time. For more of these messages from our stables, kindly subscribe to our teaching podcast at www.thebasileacommission.podbean.com or via the Podbean app on your mobile device. For inquiries and further information, kindly send us an email to info at thebasileacommission.org or find us on social media with the handles at the Truth Simply Put or at WarTheChurch. You can also send us an SMS, call us, or connect with us via WhatsApp on plus 234-70-881-8864. Finally, if you would like to give to support the work that we do, kindly follow the Patreon link in our podcast or contact our office for details. Thank you.